Well, hey, good evening, Harvest. How are we doing? Good. Um, hey, do me a favor. Turn, open your Bibles to Malachi 3. Um, we're going to be at Malachi 3. Thank you guys for being here tonight. I hope you guys have a good Memorial Day weekend. I hope you get some good quality time with family and friends. Um, as you're turning to Malachi 3, I uh, just want to let you know it's going to be a quiet holiday at the Wisen home uh, this weekend because my youngest, Judah, just got his tonsils uh, taken out surgically yesterday. So if you want to know what we're going to be doing this weekend, it's going to involve a lot of popsicles and watching movies and uh, would really appreciate your prayers for my little guy. He's doing well, but he's in um, a decent amount of pain, which is usual. So um, we've been in a study for about four or five weeks in a, a series that's been looking at two minor prophets. We started with Haggai, and then we moved to Malachi, or as Taylor wrongly said, Malachi, the Italian um, prophet. I'm not going to let him live that down quite yet. Um, but we've been in Malachi, and we've got about two weeks left. And um, just to remind you, what God would do is, is he would raise up these prophets to speak difficult truth into his people. When, when Israel was going astray, when they were following idols, when they were not worshiping him like God called them to, he would raise up prophets. They would come give hard truth. And oftentimes they, the prophets wouldn't be liked very much. And um, that's exactly what's going to happen tonight. In fact, Malachi 3 is actually being famous for being one of the least liked passages in all of scripture by church people. And here's why. And I'm just going to be honest with you tonight. Um, God's going after your wallet. Tonight, tonight Malachi is going to rebuke the people of Israel for being stingy with their tithes and offerings towards God. And he's going to hit to, to maybe a, a idol for probably everyone in this room on some level, and that is our finances. So um, look at Malachi 3, verse 6. Follow along as I read through verse 12. It says this. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. All right, so let's pause there for a moment. Do you see what God just said there? He said, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Let me translate that for you. He's basically saying the only reason I haven't crushed you, Israel, is because I don't change and I'm good and I made promises to your great, great, great grandfather that I would protect you and keep you. See how mad God is right at the start of this passage? He's like, the only reason you're still alive is not because you are righteous or you deserve it, but because I, the Lord, do not change. Right? Have you ever like gotten in trouble and your folks were like, man, if you weren't a Wisen, right, I'd have nothing to, to do with you. Like, like if I could disown you, I would, but you're stuck with me, so I can't. You know, it's like one of those type of moments. Then look at verse seven. He says, from the days of your fathers... You have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouses that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no 
more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. All right, here's the big idea tonight. It's very, very simple. It's this. It's that you don't get to disconnect your faith from your wallet. You don't get to disconnect your faith from your wallet. And to help you understand this, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you're here and you have your wallet, can you just pull it out really quick? And what we're going to do is we're going to bring these all up to the front and then scramble them around and you get to bring someone else's wallet home. Does that sound like fun? No, no, no. We're not going to do that. But here, if you have your wallet, hold it up over your head. All right? Get it out. Let's see it. Lift it up. Come on. I know more than you of that have your wallet. All right? Look, this is a test. Your wallet is a test. Turn to your neighbor and tell them your wallet is a test. All right, you can put it back. I know some of that, that's making you sweat, even just having your wallet out in the open. Um, Your wallet is a test of what matters to you. Your wallet is a test of your heart. Your wallet is a test of your work ethic. It's a test of your integrity, of your honesty. It's a test of your discipline. It's a test of your contentment. It's a test of your planning. It's a test of your heart. All right, so before we really dive into this text, I want to give a couple disclaimers. Here's the first one. Um, I have no ulterior motive in preaching this message. And and here's what I mean. Um, The finances of our church are healthy. We're, we're, we're good. I promise we're not going to sneak another offertory basket in the closing song, right? Um, I'm not going to announce a capital campaign or a new project where we need finances for. That's not why I'm preaching this message. The reason I'm preaching this message is because we at Harvest, we are committed to preaching the full counsel of God's word. And we are in a book where God hits on the selfishness of the Israelites in their lack of giving back to God what is rightfully his. Second thing I would say is, is I can even sense in the room right now, some of you are getting defensive. And, and I get it. I understand it. Look here. I understand my audience. I totally get that Dutch people aren't exactly world-renowned for being generous, are we, right? Like when Dutch people use the slang term being Dutch to describe being stingy, we know we have a problem. I get it. But here's why I'm excited for tonight. It's this. I'm not going to spend the next half hour reading through statistics on how bad Americans are at giving back to God or going through stats about how we're failing in this to make us feel bad. Here's what I believe. I believe that when we follow God's design for our lives, including giving back to God what belongs to him, the blessings and joy and abundance that flows out of that is a thousand times greater than the 10% I'm giving up by being faithful to God. And so I've kind of listed out this message with five points and it's this, it's five reasons you'll never convince me not to tithe. Mary and I have been um, faithful to tithe ever since we have been married and you would never be able to talk us out of it. And here's the first reason why you'll never convince me not to tithe. It's this, because tithing is a foundational element in how I relate to God. Tithing is foundational to how we as people relate to our creator God. Look at verses seven and eight again. You'll see this in the text. 
He says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? Okay, here's what I want you to do want you to do, I want you to notice the language God is using when he talks about how man is robbing God. It's not just that they're breaking a law, but he goes, you've left me. It's very, very relational language. You've stole from me. You've robbed me. Return to me and I will return to you. It's not just that they've broken a rule. They have fundamentally left God and have broken relationship. He views this as very, very personal, which is why he's so angry in verse 6. You can see God take this really personally. And so the question is why? Well, as I was studying this passage this week, um, I had a light bulb moment. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where all of a sudden like something clicks and you're like, oh man, I've never seen that before, but now this makes a ton of sense to me. And so to help you understand that, I'm going to throw up on the screen Genesis 4. And this is back at the beginning of the Bible. If you remember in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they've sinned, sin has entered the world. It has broken man's relationship with God and with one another. And then Genesis 4 goes and it talks about Adam and Eve's kids. And it talks about two of their sons, Cain and Abel. And it says this, it says, Now Adam knew his Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering, he had no regard." All right, and many of you, if you've grown up in the church, you know this story. It doesn't end well, right? Cain gets mad at Abel because Cain's offering wasn't accepted and Abel's was, and he ends up murdering his brother. But here was the light bulb moment for me as I was studying it this week. This is all the way in Genesis 4. And you see, at, or you see Cain and Abel relating to God by giving back the first fruits of what God has given them. Okay, so here's what I want you to understand. Before we ever see a temple in scripture, before a tabernacle is ever constructed, before there are prophets, before there are kings, before there are priests, before you ever see corporate worship, before people gather together and sing praises and and pray, before you see any festivals, before any preaching of the Bible ever happens, what do you see? You see people giving back to God and worshiping him through tithing, giving back to the Lord what is his. Before you see any other forms of worship established, you see people giving back to God. Tithing is a foundational element in how we worship and relate to God. Tithing predates the Old Testament law. It is laid out in the law. It is taught by Jesus, and it is absolutely present and assumed in the New Testament early church. It is a consistent theme we see throughout Scripture. In fact, theologian Stephen Olford writes this. He goes, the principle of tithing is timeless. 
It is for every man in every age and in every dispensation. It was neither instituted by the dispensation of the law nor terminated by the dispensation of grace. It was neither given by Moses nor abrogated by Jesus Christ. Tithing was both incorporated into the law of Moses and into the New Testament church. The principle of Sabbath is similar to that of tithing. It's a universal principle like Sabbath rest. The first things belong to God, the first day of the week and the first portion of my income. All right, so why is this so foundational to God? Here's why. Here are two things tithing accomplishes. The first is it rightly acknowledges that everything is God's, including what he has graciously given to us. When we give back 10% to God, we're saying, God, it's all yours anyways. That I'm not an owner of anything. I am a steward of what you have given me. The earth is the Lord's and all that dwells in it. You are in control of the harvest. Everything is yours. And I'm acknowledging your rightful place as Lord over creation. And then the second thing it does is it communicates to God that he is more valuable to us than our earthly possessions. God, you're worth more to me than my money. So I will joyfully and cheerfully give it back to you. Like, wouldn't the worst kind of hypocrisy be for us to say that we love Jesus more than everything and yet be unwilling to give him anything? This is why it is so foundational for us in our relationship with God. The reason God is taking such personal offense is because the Israelites have neglected God himself and a foundational element in how we are to worship him and relate to him. Here's the second reason you'll never talk me out of tithing. It's this. It's because tithing allows me to experience the reality of my faith. Tithing allows me, it helps me know that my faith is actually real and impacting my life. And uh, here's what I would say. One of the most common topics of conversation I have with people at church, whether it be meetings throughout the week or up front at the end of the service, I'll have people come and they'll be very, very anxious and worried, sometimes even in tears. And they'll be like, Cal, I'm really struggling with doubt. And I've grown up in the church. I, I, I know what the gospel is, but like, I'm just not sure that, that, that my, my faith is actually real. And how do I know that I'm really a child of God? Can, can we be honest in church? How many of you have ever wrestled with that question before? Yeah, like this is a common thing that many of us wrestle with. Well, here's what I would argue. It doesn't get more real than our wallet, does it? Than with our finances, in fact, there's a phrase for this we have in America. It's put your money where your mouth is. If you really believe in something, if you really love something, you're going to see that your pocketbook, that your finances follow those things. In order to help explain this, um, in my family, I am the worst golfer. All right, out of me and my dad and my brother, I am by far the worst golfer. They are more talented than I am. They have better clubs than me. They play way more. They enjoy khaki pants and pastel colors more than I do. Like all of the things that you would need to be a good golfer, they have an abundance and I just don't have it. In fact, I don't even really like to play with them because they're so good, they just destroy me. All right, so here's what that means. If my brother came to me tonight and was like, hey Cal, let's go play nine holes and let's put some money on it. You know what I'm going to say? Absolutely not. No way. I don't have any faith that I'm going to beat my brother. I don't believe in my golf game. 
All right, but see, there's other things that I'm way better than them at. Like if you get a ping pong match going, it's like, how much do you want to pay for it, right? Like I'll, I'll, you know, I'll put children on the line when it comes to ping pong. I feel that <laughs> good about it. Um, it's because I believe in it. Jesus, in Matthew 6, he writes this. He says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I need you to hear me. It's not a guarantee. You can't buy your salvation. You can't buy a relationship with Jesus. I'm not saying that. Here's what I am saying. If you're struggling with, man, how do I know if my faith is even real or not? A a, a way that tithing can help is like, no, I, I am putting my money where my mouth is. It is impacting my life in real, tangible ways. And I'm giving back to the Lord because I believe that he's alive and that he's real and that he is worthy of my worship. I think it gets really, really difficult to to help you answer that question if your faith is costing you nothing. Am I putting my money where my mouth is or is it just talk? Here's a third one, and this one's huge. Third reason why you won't be able to talk me out of tithing is um, because generosity is the cure for the cancer that is my selfishness. Generosity is the cure for the cancer that is my selfishness. So again, I'm not going to, but if I wanted to, I could spend the next 20 minutes absolutely overwhelming everyone in here with statistics about what's happening in our society, specifically around the mental health of young people. High schoolers, college age, even junior hires now are more medicated, more anxious, more hopeless, have higher rates of drug dependency, suicide rates um, are higher than they've ever been. None of it's good, and, and in fact, it's terrifying. And some of you are like, well, I don't know if I believe the statistics. Here's the thing. All you need to do if you don't believe me, talk to someone who works in a public school. We have a lot of teachers and administrators here at Harvest who are shining lights into the public school. But when I talk to any of them, they're like, it is a dark, hopeless place and it's scary. So the question we need to ask ourselves is this, how did we get here? How did we arrive here? And I think a good place to start is Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Here's what it says. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that um, will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So what God's saying is, is, listen, God's not mocked. God is a God of consequences and what you sow, you're going to reap. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, what have we as a culture and a society been sowing? Well, do me a favor, throw up the next slide. And what I have here listed are the two major thought movements that have kind of occurred in my lifetime or have at least been prevalent um, for me when I was growing up. The first is postmodernism. I want to talk about postmodernism quickly. It's this. Um, it's just the belief that there is no objective moral truth. That there's no way to know what truth is. That your truth might be different than my truth. And, and all of this was actually, it was quite a um, targeted and vicious attack on the authority of Scripture. 
Who are you to tell me that some God or some book gets to tell me how to live my life? That is not morally objectively true because there is no truth, which by the way, the statement that there is no objective truth is a truth statement, but I digress and give myself a headache when I try to go down that vein. Okay, but see, here's the problem. When you lose truth, you lose some other things with it. If there's no objective moral truth, then life all of a sudden doesn't have a moral objective meaning. You can't convince me that there's meaning or purpose for life. And if I don't have meaning or purpose for life because there is no ultimate truth, it's really hard for me to have a vision for how to live or for what my life should look like. You see, there's a lot of the baby that gets thrown out with the bathwater when you say there is no moral objective truth. And I think this view was most crystallized for me in a song written by John Mayer in 2008. The song's titled, Who Says? And I'll throw up the next slide. This is John Mayer. And this is the line of the song. It says, who says you can't get stoned? Turn off my lights and my telephone, me and my house alone. Who says I can't get stoned? Okay, and this was written before marijuana was legalized. So he was writing about something that was clearly breaking the law. But here's his attitude. Who cares? Who is anyone to tell me what I can or can't do? And if you listen to this song, it's a super catchy song. The whole purpose of the song is love, friendships, relationships, drugs. None of it means anything. And this was the anthem of my generation. No one can tell you what to do. There is no moral objective truth. Nothing means anything. Okay, and then now we've added to that a, a growing um, celebration of humanism. Throw up the next slide. Humanism, what that is, is elevating yourself to the highest possible pursuits. It's selfishness on steroids. The most important thing is that you are free to be whoever you want, do whatever you want, and feel affirmed. And you and how you feel are the absolute purpose of your life and the center of reality. Okay, but here's the problem. What does selfishness produce? It produces isolation and misery. And by the way, I don't have to spell this out for you. You guys know this. Right? If you want to destroy a relationship, what's the best way to do it? Just be as selfish as you possibly can be. You want to cause chaos in your marriage? Live selfishly. You want to destroy your relationship with your kids? Make your relationship with them all about you. Make everyone hate you at work? Just use others for your benefit and for your gain. Use them to accomplish your purposes. It produces isolation and it produces misery. I've said this many times. Think about the most miserable person you know. I bet you that person is very, very, very selfish. This is obvious. Okay, so here's what's happened. We have sown seeds in our culture of there is no meaning, there is no truth, there is no purpose in life, and it's a good thing to be selfish and pursue your self-interest above everything else, which we know creates isolation and misery, and then we're shocked that we're reaping a harvest of depressed, hopeless, miserable people. It's almost like God knows what he's talking about, right? Do you see it? We can't figure it out, but you see how we are reaping what we have sown. So here's what I need to do as a dad. I need to help my kids fight this mentality. And how do I do that? I've got to attack the cancer that is my selfishness and that starts with generosity. So what I need to do is I need to say, listen, no, 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 there is objective moral truth. 
There is a creator God. We are his people. We are his family. We are his children. And one of the ways we show that as a family is we give back to God because we believe that everything we've received is from him. And then guess what that does? It gives my kids purpose, it gives them meaning, and it gives them a vision for life. They exist to glorify God, and they can do that every day in whatever context God puts them in. And then guess what else I do? I fight selfishness with generosity. That if you don't want to be miserable and if you don't want to be isolated, here's what you need to do. You need to not just be generous with God, but be generous with others. Because guess what generous people tend to have? A lot of friends. There's a man in our church, and I won't give his name because it would embarrass him, but um, he's just one of those guys that every time you see him, he's inviting you over. Hey, come over to my house. Hey, we'll make you dinner. Hey, um, let me take you out to eat. Hey, let's go grab coffee. It's on me. He's just a very, very generous person. And here's what I've learned about this guy after being his friend for five, six, seven years. Everyone loves him. He's always got people to hang out with because his generosity builds relationships. Acts 20, 35 says, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus himself says, If you want to experience blessing, stop thinking about what can I get, what can I get, what can I get. Think about what can I give, because that's where friendship and relational blessing lies. Generosity with God and others will build and protect everything that our selfishness wants to destroy. So you'll never convince me not to tithe. Here's the fourth reason. Um, Because tithing is the safest way to practice generosity. Tithing is the safest way to practice generosity. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8 says this. It says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. All right, the call as Christians, it's not just that we give, but it's the attitude by which we are generous. And um, here's what I would say. If the call is to be generous with God and with others, can we talk about the others for a second? Here's the problem about when we're generous with others. You're leaving yourself open to get hurt. Did you realize that? Have you ever been generous with someone and it didn't go well? You got hurt in the process? Raise your hand. Yeah, I've been there too, right? Your generosity can be taken advantage of. It cannot be appreciated. It, it, It can be used. You can be hurt in the process. Ever since my wife and I were married, one of the things that we've just felt convicted about for our family is, is we want our home to be a place that's not just for our family. So we've kind of committed to the Lord, if God, if you bring people into our life who need a place to live, we're always going to kind of keep a guest room open. And if people need to live in our house for a season, um, we will make that available. We're not going to charge them. We just want to be generous and open our house. We think that's a good thing to teach our kids. We want to live with that mindset. Can I tell you a secret? That hasn't always gone well for us. It hasn't always been easy. In fact, it's created a lot of conflict in times. And there's been times where we've said, hey, you're exposing my kids and making decisions that I can't expose them to. You need to leave. And it creates a lot of pain and, and a lot of hurt. There's risk there. But that's not true with God. 
You can't be more generous than God is to you. Did you know that? James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Um, here's a fun fact. Do you know that the average person breathes around 16 times every minute? Do you guys know that? About 16 times a minute, the average person breathes. So I need you to not worry about how much you're breathing right now and keep listening to me. But here's what that means. That means in about half an hour that you've been listening to me talk, God has given you 480 individual gifts. Every breath we breathe is a gift from above the author of life. He gives and gives and keeps on giving. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See what Paul's saying? He goes, you want God to prove that he's for you and loves you and that you can't outgive him? He's given his son. God himself came to earth and died for you and me. It is the greatest sacrifice in the history of the world. And he keeps giving and giving and giving and forgiving and being patient and loving and being long-suffering. It never ends. There's never a shut off for that faucet of grace. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And yet we are still unwilling to trust him with our money by giving back to him what's already his anyways. What does that say about our hearts? Here's the fifth reason. Tithing gives me a front row seat to experience God's faithfulness. Look back at Malachi 3 verse 10. Here's what he says. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need and I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God's saying, test me in this. Trust me, I will be faithful. He, he says, if you give to me what is rightfully mine, I will absolutely provide for you. And I love this language he used. He, he says, I will rebuke the devourer. And what he's talking about here is something very, very specific. What had been happening is Israel had been planting crops and harvests, but, but pests or bugs or worms would come eat up the harvests. And he's saying, listen, if you're faithful and you give to me, I'll make that go away. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I control what comes in anyways. I control what you get. And if you're faithful with me, I, I will make it so you have more success in your pursuits. Okay, but church, here's the problem. There's been in our country and around the world false teaching that has corrupted this passage and this message, hasn't there been? And people have twisted this to say that if you give faithfully to God, God's gonna make you rich and healthy. It's the health and wealth prosperity gospel. And this is obviously false teaching and a twisting of this text. God is not a heavenly ATM or piggy bank or a genie who, whose magic lamp we rub by tithing. Okay, but here's why that really stinks that there's been this false teaching. Because this promise that blessing follows obedience is really true and it's awesome. 
And being a pastor now for here for a dozen years or however long it's been, I could tell you story after story after story about how generous, faithful people God has provided miraculously for in their moment of need. Sometimes it's with a job that they had no business getting when they lost their job unexpectedly. Sometimes it's been a small group coming around and supporting in really, really gracious and generous ways. God is saying, listen, put me to the test. See that I won't provide. And that's why I say, right, what is our wallet? It's a test. Do we trust God? God does not lie. He's faithful to his promises. When we trust him, he will bless us in return. And it might not just be financially, it might be in our relationships and in our conduct and in breaking patterns of sin in our life. Five reasons you'll never convince me not to tithe. And here's the argument I'm going to make, church. Look at those five things. That's what I get to receive when I'm faithful to give back what's God's. I won't trade those five blessings for 10% more of me without God's blessing ever. It would be a really, really dumb trade. And again, I've gone out of my way tonight to not overwhelm you or bore you with statistics at how bad American Christians are at giving. Um, I'll give you a, a hint, we're not great. And there was just one statistic I wanted to share with you that really, really blew my mind. It says that the average American Christian gives about 2.5% of their income back to God. So we tithe a quarter of what God's word would call us to. And here's what blows my mind about that. Do you know that our grandparents and great-grandparents tithed more than that when they were going through the Great Depression? When they had nothing, the past generations of Christians were more faithful to trust the Lord with what little they had than we do today, right now. That stat shocked me. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, we've looked at this already. It says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And I just wanna close with this thought. You know, I, over the last few years, I've had a conversation with some of you a lot. And here's how the conversation goes. It goes like this, man, I'm really concerned with where America's heading. How many of you guys have had those concerns, right? Yeah, I'm really, really concerned about what I see. And guess what we love to do? We love to blame people for why it's happening, right? We blame Congress, we blame politicians, we blame you know, taking prayer out of the public schools and, and we blame Hollywood or we blame culture. And we're like, here's the reason why America's headed down this trajectory. And, and we love to blame others for that. You know what I've never heard in that conversation? I've never heard someone say, man, you know what? We as Christians have really sowed very stingily or Dutch towards God. We've been selfish. We've lived out a gospel that says my things are more important than being faithful to what God has called us to do. And man, it doesn't surprise me at all that we're reaping a harvest of a culture that is wildly selfish and Christians aren't exactly shining as lights in the midst of it. Listen, the prophets job was to call God's people to repentance and faithfulness. And here's what I'm going to say tonight. There's a lot of things about our culture that I have no control over. 
but I can control being faithful to the Lord and walking in obedience. And I can control being faithful to lay out to you what God's word clearly says. Again, not doing this because we need anything. I'm doing this because your heart needs these blessings and I want that so badly for you because I love you guys. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for, um, thankful for tonight. I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for um, a holiday weekend that uh, gets us a day off of work where we can have time with family and friends. And God, I just pray um, for conviction tonight. And God, I know that there's people in here who are knocking this idea of generosity and tithing absolutely out of the park. And there's some that this is a very, very real stronghold in their life. And so God, I'm just asking that you would do what my words are powerless to, and that's to change and move hearts. Would you help us in this, God? We want to be a people who experience the blessing of being your children in new and fresh ways. God, we always want more of that. Would you break our hearts of the areas of pride and selfishness in our lives? We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.